You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. God bless you. Uh, we're going to go to our series tonight, and uh, I'm going to take you, pick pick up where we left off last week, and I apologize for not having a handout last week or this week. I have so many notes, I didn't know what to put. I started to make a handout for you tonight. I really did, and I gave up when I got it down to about four pages long, and I thought, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. So you can uh, take your own notes, and you can decide what you want to write down, what you don't want to write down, and uh, (coughs) as well, this is available uh, for uh, longevity's sake, I guess, on Facebook and YouTube, and you can go back and you can listen. By the way, if you did not know this little trick, on YouTube, YouTube is, is a, a much better way, or podcast is the best way, I think, to listen to things. Uh, but on YouTube and on podcasts, you can go back and you can speed it up or you can slow it down. So you can turn a 50-minute Bible study into 25 minutes, or you can turn it into an hour and 40 minutes, whatever you want to do. So, and you can go back and catch all of those things. But I, I do want to be able in the future to give you a little bit more uh, information. I want to jump back uh, and just review some key points, four key points that we touched on last week and we did not finish. Uh, and, and then we'll see how far we go tonight. We're in our series. This is the fourth night of Origins, a study of beginnings. And this is a look uh, topically uh, at Genesis 1 through 11. And as I've said before, this is perhaps one of the most critical Bible studies that I could teach. Now, there's a, that's hard to say. There's a lot of things. Everything is critical. All the Word of God is necessary. But Genesis 1 through 11 is so foundational, and it is also probably the, the, the most under attack. It is the most uh, challenged passages of Scripture, not just from outside the church, but within the church. And many people uh, have this uh, bad tension of not really paying attention to Genesis 1 to 11, and they just want I, want, I want baptism, I want the Holy Ghost, I want, I want God for what God does to me or does for me, and we don't really want to accept, uh, we don't really want to have the faith that it takes to live through circumstances, and that faith really comes from Genesis 1 through 11. Um, so uh, we're getting into this. So everybody say in Jesus' name, amen. God bless your word tonight to our hearing. We ask this in your name, amen. So we were going through our study last week, looking at creation, how, and when. So this is how far we come, creation, how, and when. And we looked at a few things that we have to think about. And this is not a a full vetted apologetics. I do want to give you some things, but then at the end of this portion, I'll give you some resources, point you in the right direction. And I'm not totally going to make up your mind or or, uh, attempt to try to make up your mind. Uh, And we'll look at that a little bit uh, later. But we looked at uh, old earth versus young earth. That was what we were looking at. And the when, old earth is Old earth versus young earth. And we asked the question, what does the scripture really say? And so we went to Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 5. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 5. 
And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Or if we have that in the NASB, do you have that in the NASB? Uh, Genesis 1.5 says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, comma, one day. Did we get that up there? I know we've got it, but I'm sorry. Okay. So one day, and we looked at the point is that what was translated in the KJV and most of our modern translations in English, it says the evening and the morning were the first day. And while that is not incorrect, it can be misleading because, uh, not misleading, I don't want to say that, but it can be misinterpreted because it lends itself to uh, interpretation where the actual Hebrew would probably translate a little bit more like this, and there was evening and there was morning, comma, one day. And we highlighted the fact that in this passage of Genesis, the cardinal number is used here for this first day, not the ordinal number. So that would be the equivalent in our uh, English. We would say one, two, three, four. Those are cardinal numbers. Uh, uh, and then the ordinal number would be first, second, third, where we're not talking about the number. We're talking about an order that was established. And so this is not just referencing the first day in an order, but it is actually saying one day or day one, implying that this is the first ever day to exist. And so this is the first day. God is establishing uh, the day. We take that <coughs> excuse me, to mean that God is establishing the day. So we looked at that a little bit. I want to follow on uh, with that. Not only uh, is it the cardinal number, uh, not the ordinal number, but we, we went to, uh, uh, let's go to Genesis 1, 14 through 19. This would be day four. And God said, let the lights in the firmament of the heaven, we're in the KJV now, the lights of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, we're on the fourth day. Every day ends with in the evening and the morning were the first day. And there was an emphatic in the Hebrew that lets us know that day one was, was not just day one in a recreation but it was actually the very first day, the establishing of the day. And now we come to the fourth day. Um, third day, there's, there's the waters and there's the firmament and there's the separation and there's the vegetation that is, that is uh, uh, or, or the second day, firmament and the waters. The third day, there's the vegetation. Fourth day, God's setting lights to divide the day and the night. And he's setting, uh, he says, and let them be for lights in the firmament, verse 15 of the heaven, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. Everybody see that? If you have your Bibles, that's a good place to underline or in your note. God made two lights. So on the fourth day, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. 
And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule, verse 18, to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So now it uses that ordinal number in the Hebrew because the first day, the very first day ever, one day has been established. And now the days that follow, we could say day two, day three, day four, but it's ordinal because the first has already been established. What I would like to highlight on the fourth day, it does not say God created the day. The text does not say that God created the day. It says that God made the sun and the moon to rule over the day. The point being is that the day has already been established. But God set the moon and God set the sun to rule over the day and to rule over the night. But the text does not say that this is the beginning of days. It's just the day that God sets the sun and the moon there. And so that, that is an interesting takeaway uh, uh, to look at here. He says he puts it for signs, he puts it for seasons, he puts it for days, and he puts it for years. He gave them for years. So that's interesting, for seasons. Uh, God set the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule, quote-unquote, the night. They lord, literally, they lord over, in the Hebrew, they lord over the day and the night or the full day period complete with evening and morning. And we talked about that a little bit last night, why evening comes first, because darkness was first, the absence of light was first, and then God created light. And, and, and that light, what was that light in day uh, one? Was it actual physical uh, light like we think, or was it energy? Was it, was it matter? Was it stuff? Um, I don't know if they have the answers all to that, but the point is here that God established the day on day one, evening and morning. He establishes that, but on day four, he sets uh, uh, lights to rule over them. So when God set them to rule over it, he was saying that the day was already established. So it's clearly not saying that this is when the day as a length of time was established. That has already been established. So right here in this verse, it's telling us, that the way we interpret a day is as we see it. These passages, 14 verses 14 through 19. The way we interpret a day is the way we see it, literally. Um, evening and morning. And in the Hebrew uh, day, it started at sundown. So sundown, which will start in just a few uh, moments here tonight after church, and it will go till the next sundown. That was a day. And so this is telling us, God gave him the sun. By the way, he gave him the sun. He gave him the moon. The earth revolves. Uh, uh, a day is established by um, the earth spinning. Uh, one full rotation is a day. When the earth goes around the sun, that is a year. When the moon goes a rotation around the earth, that is a month. And so God established day. He established years uh, uh, for signs, for seasons, but the interesting thing was God established the week. He established the week at the end of seven days. And on when he instituted the Sabbath, 
or the Shabbat. And he said, I'll be Lord of the Sabbath. So he's establishing this, but in this passage of scripture right now, he is letting us know that the day is as we see it. So it's hard for us to take away this from this text and assume that the fourth day, which is verses 14 through 19, could be anything other than a day in the context of time that we know it here and now. So let's go on to the next point, the third point of the slide. I don't know if you have, I think it's slide 18. Try slide 18. I don't know if that's, uh, if you have them numbered. Nope, that's not the one. It's not that one. Um, the third point is Exodus 20 and 11. Exodus 20 and 11. There you go. Third point, day four. The day is already established. And then point four, thank you. Exodus 20 and 11 states that there is a six-day creation week. So in Exodus 20, 11, and I don't know if you can throw Exodus 20, 11 up there. Exodus 20, 11 says this. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, whereof the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So uh, Moses is teaching them about the Sabbath, the institution of the Sabbath, the giving of the law. And in that, he makes an appeal to the creative week. And Moses says that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. So here creation <coughs> is compared to the normal Jewish work week. God was Lord over the Sabbath or the week. So here it is, six days and then the seventh day that they rested. So... What is the text saying? That's the big question. What is the text saying? Day one is one day. Cardinal, not ordinal. Day four is telling you how we define a day, which has already been established, but how we now measure a day with the sun and the moon. Exodus chapter 20 is telling us that in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. So what is the text telling us? What is, if we're just looking at the text, let's push everything else that we've learned or thought or consider, what is the text saying? Well, the text, the conclusion would be this, and this is a takeaway, and I know there would be people that would disagree with me. Uh, uh, that's fine. There is, the conclusion is this, there is no way to read the original text and conclude anything other than a literal seven-day week as the beginning of creation. There's no way to read the text and conclude anything other than a seven-day, a literal seven-day creative week. So any, uh, 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 you go back into Judaism, the history, this is what they believe. This was what they held on to. There's no way that we could take the text to say anything else. Now, there have been people, uh, uh, even in, Christ in Christendom, uh, hundreds of years prior, maybe even uh, over a thousand years ago, that did not necessarily believe that the earth was young, but they still believed in a creative six days. So we're going to look at all that, and we're going we're gonna to try to figure out uh, uh, how we reconcile some of this stuff. Because the text does not, the Bible does not tell us, you can't turn to chapter and verse 
and the Bible tell us that the earth is this many years old. The Bible never says that. And I want to highlight this point. Uh, this is a major, major point where people are driven away from their faith. This is also a major point where people argue within Christianity over Scripture. But don't miss the major point, and that is this, that there is a creator in heaven. There is a God in heaven that created and did this. And you and I weren't there. We don't have it all figured out. But God did this, not us. And that is the major point. Now, I know we're looking at the how and we're looking at the when. God, I think, tells us. I think he gives us some clues. I think he informs us some things. And we have to be careful how we handle the text. So that's why we're looking at this. However, um, I I could have some latitude with somebody that would say, well, well, let's look at this. We're going to go to old earth theories. We're going to go old earth theories. And I want to make some claim disclaimers. We're going to look at some old earth theories. And the next point we're looking at, or or the point we're looking at right now is, uh, what is the point we're looking at right now? Old earth versus young earth. Yes, thank you. That's what we're looking at right now. Old earth versus young earth. So in the context of creation, everybody believes, let's assume we all believe that God created, but is the earth old or is the earth young? And so some would say the earth is about 10 to 15,000 years old, let's say. And some would say, some creationists would say, well, the earth could be upwards of 15, what is it, 15 million, 15 billion, I can't remember, uh, years old. So old earth, old earth theories, if we're going to be honest, are, are something that are, let's say, in the history of, of Scripture, by that going back to the time of, uh, let's say, Abraham, but really Moses, but going back to that time, Old earth theories are something that are rather new within the context of scripture interpretation. A few hundred years, mostly. Maybe maybe going back, uh, I don't know, what would you say? A thousand, fifteen hundred years? Brother Clayton, I know you've studied some of that. But um, it, it was not something that was necessarily prevalent, let's say, at the time of Christ and after the time of Christ. So a lot of these old earth theories, though, really come about in the last few hundred years. We can, we can really uh, 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 look at that. The last few hundred years, and many times, if we're going to be honest about them, they were an attempt to accommodate all the facts being put out by alternate creationists or uh, evolutionists. And because they say it's old, uh, Christians felt pressure to try and accommodate it. So how do we try to reconcile this and how do we try to accommodate it? So um, I do want to put this disclaimer out here that old earth creationists do not accept evolution in the macro sense. And so they should not be confused with theistic evolutionists. And so this is where we can uh, say we have some common ground and we wouldn't throw one another out. In fact, I have with me tonight, by intention, I brought up here the Premier Study Bible, which I love. Excellent, excellent study Bible, an apostolic work. And you've heard me talk about it. One of the great things I love about the Premier Study Bible, right here on page four, 
there is this little part, extra biblical creation accounts. They have all these little notes here, just letting us know that uh, there was a lot of ancient civilizations that equally had creation accounts, sort of how that creek uh, uh, compares. There's a lot of good stuff. But if you go to page one uh, right here, and so this is good apostolic brethren that did this, there is an old earth theory that is being espoused right here. And that theory specifically in here is the first one on our list, and that is gap theory. So the first is gap theory. So an old earth theory would be gap theory. So real quick, I'm going to run through this. You can write this down if you want. You don't have to. But the old earth, <coughs> the gap theorists believe this, that there is a gap between Genesis 1-2 and 1-3. Let's go to the text and look at it. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then we get to verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so here you have verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 3, you have a detailed account. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And it goes on, verse 4, verse 5, day 1. And so some people have said, well, They'll look at this from this point. And here's the greatest argument that I've heard for gap theory. Go to verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So here's, here's, here's how I was convinced to be a gap theorist. I was a gap theorist for a day or two, maybe even a week. Is that all right? It's Wednesday night here tonight. Can I just be honest? <laughs> I've been a gap theorist. I've been a theistic evolutionist. I've been, uh, you know, for, for maybe, maybe, maybe the theistic evolution, it was like half a day. I gave half a day to it. I don't know. But, but like looking at this, trying to figure all this stuff out. Well, the greatest argument I had towards gap theorists was one of, one of my good mentors told me, he said, the earth was without form and void. God never created, and a lot of people have translated that. If you go down into the, into the commentary, a lot of people say it was chaos. The earth was without form and void. It was chaos. I have here, I have here my good, uh, this isn't, isn't totally perfect, but Robert Alter, one of the foremost uh, Hebrew scholars, and here's how he writes his own, he does his own translation here of uh, the, the, uh, the Torah, actually the, old, the, the whole uh, Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. If I can get there, wherever page it's on, okay. When God began to create the heaven and earth, and then the earth was welter and waste and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters. So he translates it, and this watch this. He says, he translates it, it says, the earth then was welter and waste. So that's the common takeaway, that the earth was without form and void, or it was chaotic, it was messy. And the thought process is God never created mess. Mess happened, but mess happened as a result of sin. So God would never create something imperfect. He would never make something wrong that then he would have to come back and fix. And I thought, aha, they got me. 
That's right. Okay, I'm a gap theorist. <laughs> and so then in, in Genesis 1-3, they said, well, then God is recreating and, he, and he's setting it straight. However, if you read the fine print, because this is what academics do, they'll put something out there, people read over it, but in the fine print, they actually tell you what they really mean, or they'll be more honest down here. And he says, those two words, those two words are tohu, wabohu, Hebrew, I'm not saying that right, but really, in fact, we had discussion on this Sunday uh, with our uh, uh, rabbi in training, if you will, and he acknowledged that really we do not know what these words mean fully because they, they were not used. I think they're only used one other place in Jeremiah. I think it's Jeremiah. And they're not used anywhere else. And so we use this passage to interpret Jeremiah. We, we shouldn't use Jeremiah to interpret this passage. But here's what Alter says. He says, tohu by itself, without reading all the other stuff, by itself means emptiness or futility, and in some context is associated with the trackless vacancy of the desert. So what he's saying is it's not chaos and mess in the sense of uh, uh, problematic, but what he's saying is it means it's, it's created, God created things, but it had not yet been set in form. It had not yet been put in the parameters or whatever. So God wasn't creating chaos. We don't believe that. And he didn't create and then chaos happened. So gap theorists then jump off of this. Well, God wouldn't have done it. So this must have been where Lucifer uh, was cast out of heaven with his angels. And there's this whole theology that's built off of that and comes from this. This, this theory was made popular by Schofield. Now, I know, Brother Zarita, you have a Schofield Bible. I have a Schofield Bible. Schofield was a, uh, the Schofield Study Bible was a very, very popular Bible in Christianity about 100 years ago, especially among Pentecostals uh, uh, it, it, within the last 100 years. There's Schofield Bible. Then the Thompson Chain was another one that was very popular. And so uh, Schofield put that in his notes and in his commentary. And so a lot of people, they didn't have anything else to go on. It was the only thing they had. And so a lot of people would espouse to that, and they would jump to that. And he made that popular. But <clears throat> um, there, so, so let's do away. That doesn't mean chaos. We've established that. It doesn't mean chaos. The other thing is that if Genesis 1-3 was a recreation, a remaking of something that had already been made, there are words in the Hebrew that would have been used, and those are not the words that are used. And so what our, our, our rabbi in training informed us again this last week was that in Judaism, what is believed is that Genesis 1 and 2 was more of an introduction to what was being taught. And then in verse 3, it begins the detailed telling. And that makes sense because we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we get over there. And in verse 4, there's a summary. So God tells us, the word tells us what it's going to tell us. It tells us in detail. And then it summarizes what it just told us again. And it goes through. So Hebrew's written a little bit different than our English. So sometimes I think we're imposing things on the text. So the text 
uh, if we're going to be honest, the Hebrew text does not allow for gap theory. So any Jewish scholar would immediately probably shut you down, tune you out the moment that you tried to tell them that there's a gap in there because the text does not allow for it. So that theory was made prominent by Schofield, made really popular by Schofield. It wasn't authored with him. And it still exists to this day as I have recommended this Bible tremendously uh, they're reprinting this. They sold out completely the first. They're reprinting it in about six months, and I'm going to buy a case of them so we can make them available here because this really is an excellent work uh, by apostolic people just as long as you don't pay attention to the commentary on page three. <laughs> don't take it out. Don't cut it out. It's okay. It's okay. So it's okay. And, and, and the managing editor of this, the managing editor in this and I are really good friends. We were texting today, and a tremendous, tremendous man, Brother Steve Waldron, Pastor Steve Waldron, has thousands of videos and thousands of subscribers on YouTube. Uh, he doesn't believe in gap theory either, so let, I'll just put that out there as well. Um, but uh, the, other, the other people that were contributing and writing insisted. So uh, the next thing I want to look at is the day-age theory. The day-age theory is an interpretation that says that the day could represent an undesignated period of time. Some believe that it was thousands of years of time. Now, one of uh, probably the most influential apostolic pioneer in my family heritage was Bishop G.T. Haywood, because every place that my family entered into the church in the city of Indianapolis, it was started as a direct or indirect result of him. He was uh, a convert of Azusa, received the oneness of God revelation in 1915. Uh, he and 60 other men left the organization. They were a part of, uh, literally, they were, they were probably more honestly, they were pressured out over baptism in Jesus' name. There's an incredible revival that took place. He was born in 1880. He was the son of two North Carolina slaves. And he came to a city in, in the 19, uh, early 1900s. Uh, uh, Indianapolis had uh, the highest demographic percentage of uh, African Americans of any major city in North America. And it also had the highest percentage uh, Indiana as a state had the highest percentage of the Ku Klux Klan. And in the middle of that area, God sent a revival, a Holy Ghost, oneness, apostolic, Holy Ghost outpouring revival, all kinds of newspaper articles that you can go back and find where they were writing against the church. And I could talk about that. But he believed he espoused to the potential that maybe the creative week was not days, but they were undesignated periods of times. Perhaps there was thousands of years or each day. Uh, Psalm said that a day unto the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day unto the Lord. And so perhaps the day was a thousand years. So that added 7,000 years before the earth really takes off. That made the earth a little bit more older and it made, made people that were out there sort of studying that stuff. Old earth made it a little bit more palatable. However, to, uh, to uh, get this interpretation, we have to allow for yom, the word we've already talked about as a day to be interpreted as a period of time, which is not a mishandling of that Hebrew word because that day can be used as a 24-hour period and it also can be used as a designated period of time. Let's prove the point. Go to Genesis chapter 2 and go to uh, verse number 4. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 4, and look at what it says. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day 
that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So here he's just told us that he creates the earth and everything in, in seven days, or in six days, rest on the seventh. And now in the next chapter it says, these are the generations, or this is the story. This is in the day that God created it. So that word can be used as a designated period of time that's beyond that. Uh, However, the word being looked at like that is determined by the context that it is set in. So it's the context and how it's used that determines whether or not it's a 24-hour period of time, whether it's just the light, the daylight segment period, because we say daytime, and we know what that means, or whether it's uh, a season. That Those were the good old days, you know, kind of period of time. So the context that it was used. And we speak, we already spoke to the context. The evening and the morning were the first day. That's a pretty narrow context. And, and God gave us the sun and the moon to rule over the day. That's a pretty narrow context. So uh, uh, the text established the context for the period of time by creation of the day in Genesis 1 and verse 5. The problem with this theory of thousands of years or, or millions of years even, let's say, is that if you look at this, this is an interesting thing because the text says that there was firmaments and water on day two. Day three, there was vegetation, plants, and seed bearing fruit on day three. And it wasn't until the sun and the moon were created on day four. So with everything that we can observe about <coughs> the, the universe and the world around us, how in the world does vegetation exist for thousands of years without the sun and without the moon. We know that there's a lot of things that are taking place in there. Now, could God have sustained it? He could have sustained it. But everything that we understand about the effects of the rule of the sun and the moon over plant life would have not been in working order. So the conclusion is there are some logistical and logical problems with this theory in the text establishes the context of the word for a day. So you're not going to find this as an interpretive, uh, uh, possible interpretation among uh, Hebrew uh, scholars, let's say, or literature. The fourth thing we're looking at is the revelatory day. Did we look at the day age or did I skip the third? Day age, gap theory, day age. Okay, third, sorry, third. Revelatory day. The revelatory day says this, and I'll jump through this quick. It says that when it says the day one, it took God seven days to tell Adam how he created the earth. Or it took God seven days to tell Moses how creation took place when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. So they read into it that God, because when it says God, I think it's when, I think it's when God said that could be, interpreted revealed, that God revealed. However, the context does not allow for that. So nowhere does the text ever imply this, that the creative week is just God telling them. It took him seven days to tell him. It doesn't really mean that God created the earth in seven days. Well, the problem you have for that, the first problem you have is Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. It doesn't say in six days he told them about how he made the heavens and the earth. They would not have taken that away from what it was given. So the conclusion of the revelatory day is that this is a misreading between the lines 
and literally an adding to of Scripture. And we can look at that. Deuteronomy says, don't add it. You're going to have bad problems. Uh, Proverbs 36 says, don't add it, or he's going to reprove you, and you're going to be a liar. Jesus said, you make this mistake. Your error is you don't know the Scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. Revelation 22 says, whoever adds these things shall God add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. I think God... I think we have to be very careful before we start adding to. So we could say we don't know, we don't understand, but it's, it's dangerous when we start adding to. Real quick, let's go to point four. And I, I know this is not an old earth creationist theory, but this is another old earth theory. I should have put these points previously when we talked about it, but I want to revisit theistic evolution because this is something that has gained ground among the ecumenical movement, uh, of Christianity, uh, three major points and then a conclusion of theistic evolution. First, okay, the first thing, what does the scripture say? That's what we're looking at. What does the scripture say? Is theistic evolution possible? What is theistic evolution? It's believing that God created the universe and everything in you and me through the process of evolution as espoused by Darwin and everybody else. Okay, so we have some problems with that. So, uh, first, is Scripture plainly says God created and that creation was already mature. So Adam, plants, stars, all those things, they did not evolve over the process of time. God created that, that word form. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image in the image of God created him, male and female created he them. So that is formed. He is created. And he was not created as a baby and grew, but he was created as a man. And the moment he breathed life into him, he was able to talk with him as a mature being. Point two, man was not created a bacteria that evolved over the process of millions of years. Man was not created as a bacteria, and through the process of great tribulation and mistakes, he became something, but he was formed or framed from the dust of the earth and breathed life into his nostrils. <clears throat> Look at what the text says, Genesis 2 and 7. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into, what does it say? His nostrils, the breath of life. The text implies that God breathed into his nose, not his gills. Okay? Yeah. So God formed him, and that Hebrew word translated nostrils could also be translated nose, but it means his face. He was created with a face. He was not a bacteria. This is in the text. And man became a living soul. God breathed the breath of life. Number three, third point, why we do not believe in theistic evolution. Jesus affirms that Adam and Eve were created... At the beginning, day six, not millions of years later. Mark 10 and 6. Mark 10 and 6 says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So Jesus tells us that from the very beginning of creation, God made them. Now, does millions of years later 
sound like at the beginning of creation. That does not sound like the beginning of creation. However, if you have it coming in day six, it makes sense from the beginning. This is the beginning. We're, Genesis 1 uh, through 2, 7 is, is establishing what the beginning looked like. So the conclusion is this. In order for this theory, or theistic evolution, to be correct, the Scripture must be incorrect. So in order for theistic evolution to be correct, the Scripture must be incorrect, which is, I would highlight, a stance that many Christians do take and do hold. There are many people that do hold that the Bible is was given perhaps in infallibility, but it's not passed down or not handed down to us as the infallible Word of God. And again, I say to you, if it's not all good then what part of it is good? What part can we choose? What part can we deny? Amen. Everybody said amen. amen. Are we okay tonight? All right. Are we going to do this? We're going to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm on page three of your handout right now. We're going to, we're going to get all the way through four. <laughs> all right. The next thing I want to highlight here. Now, now, let's pause. Okay. Outside of theistic evolution, because theistic evolution placates to ag- agnosticism, the uh, atheism, naturalism kind of thing uh, uh, that says there is no God and we don't need a God and we can explain everything without a God. Old earth creationist, gap theorist, day age theorist, even revelatory theory, which a lot of them maybe would believe in some kind of, I don't know, theistic evolution. But there are some agreements that young earth creationists and old earth creationists would have together. And I would like to highlight those things because I have dear friends and ministers and wonderful people who would believe in, let's say, gap theory. And that doesn't mean that we part ways or we call them anathema or we think that they're a heretic or we throw them out and, and, and we can't have fellowship one with another. Because I do think that there has to be an allowance, a tolerance and a latitude that we can. Uh, and, and as a young to the young people that are in college or will go through college. I have been through those, I have been through those processes and I have looked at things. I'm 41 years old now. And so now my mind, Brother Blake, can I be, can I be honest and confess that I've changed my mind <laughs> a few times? But one thing I can say is that the word of God never changed. But I don't have everything figured out. I, I, I don't, I wasn't there at the beginning. I don't, I don't know everything. If you ask me, how old is the earth? I'm probably not the guy. I'm probably not the guy. But if you ask me, what does the text say? That has been my endeavor. What does the text say? So let's look at some agreements that we have between young earth and old earth creation. By the way, if you haven't caught it yet, I would be classified as a young earth creationist. I would be classified as a young earth creationist. I do know that there might be, uh, I don't know, I don't have everything figured out. I don't know, but any, anybody that's less than 15, 20,000 years old is classified as a young earth creationist. I, I, I say, why not? I mean, I believe God can fill me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Go explain that. I can't explain that. You say, well, the earth can't be young. You can't explain it. Well, there's a lot of things I'll tell you right now I can't explain. By the way, there's a lot of things that nobody can explain. Do you know that we still don't know what gravity is? Like literally, folks, we don't know what gravity is. We know what holds us down. We can understand a lot of things, but we just don't know what the stuff is. You can't really see gravity. It just just works. It just is. Agreements between young earth and old earth creation. Number one, 
They are both opposed to naturalism. So they are both opposed to naturalism. Naturalism says there's no need for a creator. Naturalism says everything can be explained without God. Old earth and young earth creationists say, no, there is a need for a creator. There is intelligent design. This did not happen. This was not an accident. It did not happen on its own. The only logical explanation is that there was a supreme being that spoke or did something and created all of this. Intelligent design, as we talked about, is a growing community. It is a large community of people. They are... They are not trying to be theologists, and a lot of them say, well, we're not even going to get into the fact of whether or not there is a God or, 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 or what God looks like, but they say there's no way. If we just look at the science logically, we cannot conclude that this just happened. There had to be an uncaused causer who set all this in motion. It doesn't make sense unless something physically acted upon. What was that thing? We don't know, they say. So, uh, uh, young earth and old earth creationists are opposed to naturalism. The second thing, they are opposed to macroevolution. They are opposed to macroevolution. The opposition to macroevolution is this, that there has never, ever been a time where something added enters into the biological makeup. The only observed evolution, let's say, in genetics and biology, is when there is a gene pool or factors that are already there that mutate within themselves, or there is a loss of genes. But there has never been an observed point where there are genes being added to. So without going into too much detail, when a male and a female procreate, there is DNA from one and DNA from the other, and those DNAs come together and they combine that combination, but you have a gene pool that you're working with, and a portion is taken out of here, and a portion is taken out of here, and those things can mix. And sometimes there can be mutations of what is already there, but in order for Darwin's theory of evolution to even work at all, there cannot be just taking from this gene pool and this gene pool. There has to be an adding. There has to be something new that adds a creation out of nothing. And that has never, ever, ever, ever been observed. In fact, it's so strong and so fundamental that people think there's no way. It, you, you are defying logic to believe that something new would happen that would just happen on its own unless it was acted upon, unless it was caused. And so old earth creationists say, no, it cannot happen. Young earth creationists say, no, only God can create something out of nothing. That's why it's so powerful when Jesus comes and he starts doing miracles. They don't make sense. So you're telling me that you can't believe God created the earth, <coughs> but yet you can believe him for a miracle for yourself? No, you're going to doubt it every time. The reason why I can believe God for a miracle now is because of all the miracles he's done before and because of the miracle of creation that he's done around us. When we look around, the wonder of creation. Wow, there's something powerful about that. And the third thing that they both believe, and this is interesting, but they all believe, old earth and young earth, they believe 
I should say creationists, young earth and, and old earth creationists, they believe that Genesis is an accurate history of creation. That Genesis is an accurate history of creation. Now, they have differences in how they interpret that. For instance, gap theorists would say, well, there's something else. But they don't, they don't reject the text. They don't reject the scripture as being from God. Uh, uh, the day-age theorists, they don't reject the text. The, the text is right. God had to act. God spoke and God did. God says and God does. They don't deny that the text is an accurate history of creation. So I have great respect for people that some people that are old earth creationists because they love and they value the word of God. And a lot of them in their attempt are trying to reconcile things that they've learned in the secular sciences, let's say, or, or, or studies of things that seem to uh, testify of an old earth, and they're trying to reconcile it with the text. And so how is this probable? How is this possible? Um, skip uh, age of earth science. Go to the next slide. Age of earth science. <coughs> okay. Now, I will come back to this next week, and I'll go through this. I am not a scientist. I'm not a geologist. I'm not an astrologer. I am just a layman in these terms, and I can only go off of what I've read. But God gives to all of us common sense, and I think that we can logically come to our own uh, conclusions just on some basic things. And I want to take some time to walk through this, because these are, these are used to prove the age of the earth as being millions and, let's say, billions of years old. The speed of light, the geological columns, the radioactive dating. Uh, you could throw in there carbon dating as well. Measure of salt in the sea or in the oceans. How much salt there is in the ocean. The measure of sand around the world. Um, and then the global flood factor. A lot of people would say, well, no, that's not, uh, uh, that's not possible at all. And so I think we should look at this because while this will be jumping out of the scripture to look at these, uh, what I have up here is age of earth presuppositions. And what I would like to highlight is that with each one of these, there are assumptions that are being made. So in order to come to the conclusion that the measurements say that the earth is billions of years old, there are assumptions being made. And there are, while maybe not as many scientists, there are astrologers, there are geologists, there are scientists that say exactly the opposite. We look at the earth, and the earth is testifying that it's not that old. Because if it was that old, there are other factors that you would have to consider. And so I will skip this slide, we'll come back to that, and I want to go to the recommended resources I want to give you uh, three recommended resources. There's a lot more out there. There's a lot more that you could find, but these are the most common. Now, while I may not agree with every uh, thing that they would put out, uh, they do have some great information. And by that, probably, I, I don't know, I haven't exhausted all of them, but usually going through some of them, I'll say, well, I, I don't know that I would feel comfortable saying that. But it's some incredible stuff. The first two sites that I give you are Young Earth Creationist, uh, AnswersInGenesis.com. 
the Creation Science Museum over, I think it's in Newport, Kentucky, outside of Cincinnati, and then the ARC experiences. Pretty incredible. They have some incredible, incredible stuff. Almost all of these, you can go to YouTube, and you can find a lot of their videos on there, their answers in Genesis stuff. It's pretty phenomenal. And uh, they'll put just some simple things out there that let you see, well, maybe we can't just make these assumptions and just take what people say as true. This is great stuff. There's all kinds of stuff, by the way, for your children, uh, for adults. This is very entertaining stuff. Uh, so next time you want to sit down and you want to veg out, if you want to veg out on something good, veg out on this stuff. There's a whole bunch of YouTube stuff. Uh, is Genesis history. I really like is Genesis history. He is a geologist. I was watching something this morning or today um, that he was giving. He's a geologist. Darwin, by the way, I think was schooled in geology. He was really trained by geologists. He was really a geologist before he jumped into writing about biology. So he really was just a geologist. And, and the, uh, the anchor of, of that ministry really takes him to task. He says, hey, I'm a geologist just like Darwin, so I feel I have credibility to challenge what he was saying. And he was using the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is usually used to, to illustrate how old the earth is. And the reality is, if you look at it, you could actually see that it actually is testifying that the earth cannot be that old or there would be other things that are missing. And then we have these crazy things that have happened in uh, uh, Mount St. Helen out in Washington. You've got some other crazy things that have taken place, uh, just all that revolved around there. Um, uh, the, the sand dunes in western Michigan. Uh, if you've ever been up to Lake Michigan, uh, there's an entire city that is under sand. The city's not even 100 years old, but the sand dunes, the wind has been blowing up the sand so fast. You can do dune tours and they drive over the tops of the cities and they'll show you like sometimes when the wind will change uh, directions, it'll blow a corner of a building open and you can see the corner of the building, but you're actually way above the whole city. The whole town got blown out by sand and it's not even that old. And so, whereas when you sit in a classroom, you think, well, that would have taken millions and millions of years. Here we have observed how quickly stuff has blown right over that. In fact, when you go to Jerusalem, most everything that was in the time of Christ is about, oh, I don't know, 30 to 50 feet below ground. Because in the desert, it has blown over. It's been built over so much that if you really want to walk where Jesus walked, you have to go underground to get to where he was because it's added up in 2,000 years. Uh, so is Genesis history some excellent stuff? And then reasons.org is reasons to believe. There was an astrologer or astronomer, uh, astronomer, not astrologer, astronomer, Hugh Ross. He was an atheist. He was studying the stars. And when he was looking at it, he said, there is no way that this just happened. There had to be a God. And he converted to Christianity just by looking in the stars. Nobody came to him and said, there is a God. But then he went looking and he discovered. Now, Hugh Ross is an old earth uh, creationist. And he does some things with the text that I don't think are comfortable. He doesn't believe in a global flood um, and all that kind of stuff. However, he does respect scripture. He does believe emphatically. And he has some incredible, incredible stuff on how uh, science, on how this could not have happened. There had to be a creator. He has some incredible video series. It's just absolute phenomenal. So I would throw those out there to you, and you can look at those on your own. But here's one thing that we take away, 
and this is the major we cannot forget, that God is our creator. God is our creator. And we'll get into this later when we start studying uh, humankind. Stand with me, I'm quitting. Uh, We'll get into this later. Why do we value all life? All life, the unborn and the born, every color, every age, every gender, every tribe. Why do we value all life? Because the Bible tells us that there is one God, one Father, one Creator of us all. We are all made in the image of God. Everywhere where, where cultures have euthanized people and marginalized people, it has been... Uh, Now, not to say that people have not twisted and abused Scripture, but it has been where they have justified that people were not human, subpar, subhuman. Where's that philosophy or that thought process come from? Well, it comes from naturalism. It comes from naturalism, natural selection. It comes from evolution and saying stuff like that. No, we believe that God created in his image. And we'll look at that and we'll talk about that. But I thank God. I'm thankful. Amen. That God loved me enough to reveal himself to me. There is a God. Amen. And his name is Jesus. Somebody clap your hands unto the Lord today. (coughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So next week, we're really going to go to task again. uh, uh, I'm just putting some things out there. There, uh, it's amazing how much we've pulled this out of our textbooks out of our classrooms and people don't even give God a chance but I'm here to tell you the word of God is true and you can trust in the word amen Lord Jesus I thank you tonight for this honor and this opportunity to gather together in your name I thank you for your word and I pray God that we would just not pick and choose what part of the word that we love and we want but help us to have faith in the whole word, that your word is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. We may not understand everything and we may not always get everything right, but God, one thing we know is we can put our trust in you individually and corporately. And God, I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ, let our faith be in you. Let our faith not be in the wisdom of man in Jesus name. And everybody said in Jesus name.